Welcome to the Rock Hill Dream Center Church, where we have a vision to see communities transformed by the gospel as we love, serve, share, and send. Thank you for joining us. Well, welcome everybody to the Dream Center Church. We're glad you're here. Uh, my name is Garrett Bowman. I'm one of the staff members here at uh, the Dream Center, um, and I'm excited and glad to be able to continue our series called Whose Line Is It Anyway with you guys this morning as we go over some context of uh, what are called bumper sticker scriptures, uh, popular verses you might have heard a lot here in the South, but you get used to saying without really understanding what they mean. Um, this morning, we're going to look at another one of the verses. Last week, it was um, what, congregation? There we go. Somebody was here. Philippians 4.13 was last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then this week we're going to be doing Jeremiah 29.11. Um, but before we get into that, uh, I want to go ahead and preface again um, sort of what we're going to be spending our time on, and that's context, right? Uh, last week, if you were with us, I told a couple of stories that I had hoped would help us to understand kind of the importance of context. Um, but this week, I don't want to tell the same stories because that'd be lame. Um, Instead, I want to use a different illustration to help us understand the importance of context. Um, raise your hand if you like going to the movie theater. Anybody? I know some of you do because you go a lot. Okay, a little bit too much. I just like the popcorn. I've been trying to make popcorn like that at my house forever. Maddie will tell you I don't do a good job. I don't. Um, but if you've ever been to the movies, you know how important it is to know the context of the, the movie that you're going to watch. In fact, has anybody ever been late to a movie they were going to? You're panicked. You're, oh my gosh, we're going to miss part of it. We can't miss the first five seconds. We're going to, it, we won't understand any of it. You know, it's that feeling of, oh no, we can't miss this, this part right here. Even some people don't even like missing the, the beginning. The little, what do they call those? The little... Uh, yeah, the trailers for other things. I just want to know what else is going to come out. I can't miss it. i got to get my money worth. got to do it. And, and so it's all the, <laughs> I mean, that's what you get. You get that panic. Um, it's the same whenever you read a book, right? Nobody jumps in and, and they open a book and they say, I'm going to start on chapter 10. Forget the first few chapters. It doesn't matter. I'm going to pick up in 10 and then I'll go from there. No, we, we know as people that we need context. We need understanding of what happens before and what comes after the area that we're, we're reading or watching or whatever it is, right? Um, or if you're anything like me, it's even with music. If my favorite song comes on the radio, I'm flipping through channels and I hear a song I like, I, and, and I'm like, ooh, I really like that song. I want to hear the whole thing. So I'll go and pull it up on my phone and play it again so I can hear it all the way through. Maddie rolls her eyes at me. She's like, we've heard it like three times, Garrett. Isn't that right, babe? Um, but all I'm trying to help us understand is that context is important. Um, and if we, if we begin to look at Scripture like context is not important, um, then we go to look for fortune cookies, essentially. You know, where can I pick something out that makes me feel good or that applies to where I'm at today? And the truth is that, that Scripture is so much more than that. I mean, a deep understanding of what's going on in the Scripture that we talk about in our lives is very important. And very helpful to us as we grow in what it means to know Christ and to be like him. Um, so before we get into the word this morning, I want to pray for us um, and pray for myself. And then we're going to dive in and, and I hope that 
um, God will teach us something new today. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning, and I just thank you for my brothers and sisters that are in this room um, and the way that they encourage me, the way that they encourage each other, and the way that they love you. Um, God, as we go to your word this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be here with us um, and that he would help us to discern what is right and wrong and to learn something new about who you are and how powerful it is to have the love of Jesus cover us um, each and every day. God, we lift this time up to you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, you guys can flip open to Jeremiah 29, 11 if you'd like. Um, I'm going to read it. It's up on the screen. I'm going to step over here so you can see it. Jeremiah 29, 11 in the uh, NLT says, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. We know that verse, right? That's an exciting verse. That's an exciting verse. Make us feel like we're the biggest warrior out there on the battlefront. God knows our plan. He got us. Um, I'm super excited to share with you guys what I've learned over the past week and really the past 24 hours um, about what's actually going on in this book. Uh, some powerful stuff. Um, and last week, if you were with us, you, you heard me talk about four kind of guidelines that we'll use whenever we analyze the context of a scripture. We look at scripture in the case of the book that it's in, right? So this would be the book of Jeremiah in the section that it's in. So if you've got little natural breaks in your Bible, you would look at that little sub chapter maybe or a paragraph maybe. Um, then we look at the actual verse. So we go to the key words that take place in the verse. And then we take those things and we blow them up and we say, what does this actually mean in, in the scope of the full gospel, the entire Bible, right? And so we're going to start this morning doing the same thing. We're going to start by looking at the book of Jeremiah. And this is going to be a little bit, and in fact, I, I want to be honest with you guys, I'm no historian. We've got one on staff. He would be able to do this a lot better than I would, but I'm going to give it my best shot. I've got most of it written in front of me. So if you see me reading, it's because I'm reading. I'm reading everything I wrote down as a cheat sheet, okay? Uh, I'm not here to impress anybody with my, with my, my memory because uh, it ain't really there. So um, Jeremiah is, a, is actually a really, really cool book. It's a, it's a book that's basically formed out of a collection of sermons and letters and writings by this guy named Jeremiah. Um, Jeremiah had this little writer that wrote kind of what he was doing and wrote about him called Baruch, and they formed and basically made what's called an anthology of uh, his life and his work in, in Scripture, and that's what makes the book of Jeremiah. Um, he was a prophet, so a prophet is, is a messenger of God, somebody that God ordains to be his spokesperson to a, a group of people. In this case, it's to kings and to the people of God. Um, he lived near Jerusalem, which is very important because what we're going to find is that um, the whole book of Jeremiah is about uh, the coming of uh, power from up north to destroy and to send out into exile Israel and Judah. Um, and so he is, he's really, he loves this city that God has called him to speak to and to um, prophesy in his name to. This entire book holds to the theme of God's message to the people of Israel regarding their rebellion and the judgment that's going to come as a result of it. Okay, so um, 
if we, and, and just a little pause here, if we read that verse, um, we're not thinking necessarily about judgment and rebellion, right? And so already we're starting to maybe say, well, there's more to this. Because if you look at, if you read through all of Jeremiah, you're going to see that, that this little section that has that glimmer of hope to it is kind of like the minority in this book. In fact, the rest of the book is mostly, you guys have been a little wild. You got to straighten up. God's coming, and he's going he's gonna to bring justice. And so, anyway, that, that comes later. I'm jumping. Um, this book is cool because it actually parallels a lot of the events that occur um, starting in chapter 22 of 2 Kings. And so if you look at 2 Kings, which comes earlier in the Old Testament, it's about the, um, the leadership of Judah and Israel, which are God's people. Um, and the book of Jeremiah parallels the events that are happening there. So it's almost like this book is a collection of letters and prophecies that Jeremiah is saying about the events that we already read about in 2 Kings. That's important. Um, let's see. Israel at this point has broken their covenant with God by worshiping other gods. They practice social injustice, and they even uh, partake in sexual immorality. Um, Solomon, who some of you might be familiar with the name of, he's the son of David, um, is currently the king, and he leads poorly as he also breaks the covenant with God. And, and we've been given in Deuteronomy a bunch of, like, statutes and rules that kings over God's people have to follow, and Solomon's breaking all of them. It's almost like he's, he's like, I'm not doing that stuff. And so um, the people of Israel are just really rebelling against God. We've been there, so don't, you know, don't look down at Israel. You know, we've been Israel. Um, some, some of us are, you know. I, I was a couple days ago. I mean, it's just we need the Lord's forgiveness. Israel did too. Um, so God responds to their rebellion and he raises up other kingdoms that he's going to use to destroy the tribes of Israel but he says I'm going to leave two to honor my servant David and my covenant okay um, the ten actually meanwhile Solomon um, his son takes the throne and and he's worse than Solomon because the the Israelites were in like the slave labor at the time and they go up to Solomon's son and they're like please just let us work a little less hard. You know, you've got an opportunity to give us some freedom here. And Solomon's son, like, you're going to have heavier oppression. You're going to work harder for me. And so they're like, we're not having this. The, the, the ten northern tribes are like, we're out of here. And so they split, and they go up north, and they find their own king. They're like, we're not dealing with Solomon's son anymore. We want our own rule up here. Um, and so they become the territory of Israel. And the two southern territories become the territory of Judah. Two southern tribes become Judah. Okay, so now we've got, instead of the Israelite people, which is this strip right here, we've got Israel up top with one leader and Judah down low with another leader. Now, this is already fulfillment of what we just talked about, where God was raising up um, somebody to destroy them because God says, I'm going to give you ten of them, but I'm going to save two for myself. And so now we see the separation of the ten and the two. So we're like, okay, it's coming. All right? Um, civil war basically breaks out between these two little territories. And um, after that, in First and Second Kings and even in Jeremiah, we read through a list of rulers, kings for Israel and kings for Judah. And every one of them are analyzed through this, like, I don't know, this scale of whether they're good enough. 
and basically none of them are. The, the southern territory of Judah gets like six to eight kings that, that pass the test. And this is where God begins to introduce prophets in their context. And so Jeremiah ends up being one of those prophets. And these prophets go to the kings and the leadership and the people, and they say, you're doing this, that's against God, you should repent because God's coming. That's Jeremiah's role, right? And so he's not the only prophet that comes throughout this rule and reign of all these different kings, but we're going to pick up where he does. Um, at that time, Assyria comes, which is this northern big empire. You know, they're, they're scary people. Um, they got a lot of power. Um, and they defeat Israel and fulfill a prophecy that God was going to let Israel be destroyed. Those ten tribes in the north, they get squandered, and the Israelites are taken into exile, and they're all throughout the Middle East. They don't have a home anymore. Okay? We knew that was going to happen. God told them that that was going to happen through prophecy. Um, later, uh, this ruler comes called Josiah, and he's ruling over Judah. And Josiah's pretty good. He's like a glimmer of hope. You know, like we're reading through the history, and we're like, oh, Josiah's not bad. You know, not too, not too wild. Maybe we'll make it. Maybe the people of Judah will turn and repent. Um, but they're kind of just too far gone. Um, and in fact, Josiah is doing such a good job leading, but then they go to war and he gets killed in battle and more crooked kings come and lead them astray um, and rebel against the covenant that they've made with the Lord. Um, so then we pick up and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which you guys know that name, Nebuchadnezzar, because if you've heard it once, you can't forget it. It's like, what kind of, what kind of name is that? Um, he comes and he takes over Jerusalem and all of Judah, and he sends the people of Judah into exile. Now this is where Jeremiah 29 picks up. Okay? I know that was a lot of history. In fact, it was a lot for me to try to <laughs> read and communicate. Um, but what's important to know going into this is that two things have happened. God has said, you're rebelling against me. I'm going to show my judgment. The people of Judah have continued to rebel. God shows his judgment, and then he sends them out into exile. Exile means if we were the people of Rock Hill, right, um, and a force comes in from Gastonia and says, you Rock Hillians have to move all over the place, but you can't be here. This is our place now. We are in exile. We're scattered, okay, um, which is important because they were in Jerusalem, which is the holy city where God has promised to dwell with them. And so Jeremiah 29 picks up, and I'm going to actually read for our time today, verses 4 through, I can't remember, 14. Okay? And it says this. Oh, wait. Okay. Before it says this, this is a letter that Jeremiah is writing to the people who survived the exile. Okay? So Jeremiah is writing a letter that's going to be sent to the people that are in exile to give them challenge and encouragement. Okay, and it says this. Verse 4 says, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply. Do not dwindle away. 
and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams, because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord. I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. A little bit more to it, isn't it? You know, it's, it's almost... It blows my mind how, how easily we're pleased with one verse sometimes. Because even that little section, you know, if you keep reading, there's even more to learn about what, what God means by verse 11 and what those plans are that he has. And it's so important whenever you come across a, a word like plans or good or hope that we say, what's that mean? Why? What's that word there for? Why is the Holy Spirit placing that word there? And what, what can I learn about God by looking at that word? And so what we're going to do now is look at that section, right? So we looked at the book. It was a lot. The section is a little bit more focused. Um, and it continues to pour into our context that we're looking at. And so in this section... Now the Israelites have been told that they were exiled due to their rebellion and idolatry. And God says, y'all might as well get comfy. Did y'all pick up on that? He's like, settle in. Plant some, plant some plants. Have some kids. You're going to be there for a while. You're on extended stay. You know, go on. I put you there. You're staying. Imagine that. You know, I, I know the exit because at this point they're praying to God like, Take us back home. We just want to be home. The place that you gave us, we just want to be there. And God's like, I know you do, but get comfy. Your rebellion has brought you here. Get comfy there. In fact, don't just get comfy, but live there. Be there. Grow a family. Grow gardens. Build homes. Man, if I, if I had to build a home in a place that I was sent in exile, I'd lose my hope. If I build a new home here, i got to forget my home there, right? I'm here now. i got children here. I'm getting connected to this place. And he even says, look out for the welfare of the place that you're at right here because their welfare, their prosperity will determine yours. Okay, so now I'm, I'm not only working for these people because they, they rule over me, but now i got to work for their good? Why, God? What am I doing here? God says, in, in 70 years, I'll bring you back home. Imagine being 70 and hearing that. <laughs> you know? Like, wait a minute. I don't think I'm going to get to see my house. 
you know? I mean, just imagine the, the weight that, that the words have there. Like, and it reminds me of a, um, and this is another great thing about context, you guys, because what will happen is a lot of times we'll see patterns in Scripture. Well, the people of Israel back in Deuteronomy, whenever they were rebelling against God, um, he sent them out into the wilderness while they were on their way to the promised land. And he had them wander around the wilderness until the corrupt individuals that had led them into sin died off. And after they died off, he brought them into the land that he promised them. It's a little bit of a hint toward that here. In 70 years, I'll bring you back home. Well, we know in 70 years that the leadership that was currently there would probably pass away. So God is again restoring his people through new generations. And so... Seventy years they're told to settle there and to seek the welfare of the city they're in. Um, it's important, too, to know that he says that little part that seems like it's a little out of place about verse 8 that says, Do not let your prophets and fortune tellers who are with you in the land of Babylon trick you. Do not listen to their dreams because they are telling you lies in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. Um, the reason God says that is because a little bit previously there's this um, prophet called Hananiah. And Hananiah comes to them, and he's like, y'all are going to get to go home in two years. God told me. Two years. Man, I'm excited if you tell me two years. I can count those months, those days. You know, I'm there. I'm there. We're going home soon. Start packing now, especially if you got a lot of stuff. You know, get your cattle together. We're about to go home. And this is God rebuking that false prophet and saying, I'm sorry, but you're going in 70 years. This is my plan. Don't listen to these false prophets. Test the false spirits because I know the plan I have for you. And right now, it's 70 years in exile. Okay? And so that's where that little verse jumps in there. And it's very confusing sometimes to wonder, and I'm sure you guys have asked this question. I know I have and sometimes still do. God, why do you let us live in suffering. Like, why, why is God allowing Babylon to rule over his people in this book right here? Well, think about it in your life. Why, why does God allow you to have, I don't know, uh, turmoil, pain? What does it drive you to do? If you're anything like me, sometimes it drives me to anger and frustration, but after a while, it drives me to surrender. Doesn't it? Or, or maybe finally I can put myself at a point where I say, okay, God, I'm done trying to fix this. What are you, what are you trying to teach me? It might be the only time I'm willing to listen whenever I'm actually in that suffering, Right? And there's something cool to that we're going to get to in the verse. Um, but I believe it's so that he can help us understand the hope that comes on the other side of those things. And so let's focus a little bit on the verse. Um, out, of, out of context, this verse can be a little bit dangerous. Um, if we read, and I'm going to read it one more time. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. It, if I read that and then I have a bad day at work, what am I doing? 
I'm asking God, where you at? You told me you had a plan for me and it was good. This doesn't look good, God. We start to wonder why God's not giving us good. You know, first off, like we deserve it. But then second, like, like he's lying on his promises. But what we're doing is taking a verse and we're misunderstanding it. We're not looking at its context. This verse out of context leads to disappointment, a feeling of loneliness, of, of suffering and pain without any hope. And that's dangerous because God promises us that hope. It's even in this selection of scripture. But he doesn't say that it's not without suffering and pain. In fact, when he wrote this, clearly his people were in suffering and pain, crying out to him to bring them back home and to restore the kingdom that he gave to them. And so I find it really important and, and challenging whenever we're reading through Scripture to ask those questions of why, how does this fit into everything around it? Because if we just jump into what's this mean right now for me, we're robbing ourselves of a full understanding of what God might be really trying to teach us in his word. Now, can you use this verse in context by itself? Absolutely. God does know the plans he has for you. They are plans for good. Right? But it's not without understanding what also could come in our own actions and before that hope may come and that restoration may come. And so we're going to look at a couple of key words. Um, I told you guys last week that when we focus on a verse, um, if you've got a Bible that has the little letters in the column that tell you different books that you can look at to get a deeper understanding of the scripture, that's what this is for. It's called the cross-references. Um, it's a really, really good tool that some smart people way back when um, developed for us to study and to really understand God's word deeper. Um, and I learned while I was reading in, in the ESV, um, instead of the word good, they use the word welfare. And that word in the original Hebrew is the word shalom, which we've heard before. And shalom is a Hebrew word that covers all aspects of peace and plenty. All aspects of it. It's like this full peace and a need for nothing. That's pretty cool. Because my idea of good is a little bit smaller than that. My idea of good is a cookout milkshake and some sunshine. You know, I'm happy. Thank you, God. That's awesome. But God's idea of good is like all the cookout milkshakes I could ever want. No, I'm just kidding. Um, a deep, deep good, a, a, a pleasure with where he has you no matter what. You know, like a, a satisfaction with who God has called you to be and, and that he created you. It's this understanding that surpasses anything that we could think is good for us. That's the good God has promised us. That's that shalom. And that's the same word that's used here. Another thing about the word shalom is that if we look at other places in Scripture where it's used, um, it's clear that it's achieved through a right standing with God. That's either good news or bad news. The bad news could be that we will never achieve right standing with God in our own power. I don't care what you try to do. You will not achieve it. 
But the great news that squashes that potentially bad news is that Jesus' blood does it for you. The love of Jesus on you before the Father puts you in right standing before God so that you can achieve that shalom, that peace. Another thing about the word shalom is that it's most commonly used in times of tribulation and in times of persecution. What's that tell us about the word here? If it's most commonly used in tough, ugly, rough circumstances, what's that tell us about this peace that we're meant to hope for? That there's likely some suffering going on. There's a fight that we're in. This is not me sitting on a beach. This is me in the, in the front of the battle with my armor on and my sword in hand, going at it and sometimes losing. But knowing that the war is always going to be won for me in Jesus Christ. Right? And so knowing those things, maybe we could come to a deeper understanding of, of what the plan is that God has for us. And uh, the book of Jeremiah and, and how it parallels the book of Second Kings, actually, is they have this cool little part where the end of both books um, end with the same, the same story, um, which I didn't know. I learned it at about 1230 a.m. Uh, this morning and thought it was really cool. Um, in fact, it, it was like really cool to me that it's so significant that it's in Scripture twice. It's in two different books. Um, and so, you know, test it out. Look for yourself, please, because it's really cool. At the end of Second Kings, I think it's like chapter 50, maybe 25. I don't know. Um, Jeremiah is 52. Um, the story says this. Okay, so at this point, everything's been destroyed. They're serving King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, the temple gets destroyed. Uh, the temple of the Lord, they're captives, they're exiled, all this stuff. And then, like, hundreds of years later, we pick up here. In the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiakim and Judah, evil Merodach ascended to the Babylonian throne. Okay, so they got a new king in Babylon, and Jehoiakim would be, at that time, the king of Judah, um, and he's in prison there. And it says, he was kind to Jehoiakim and released him from prison on March 31st of that year. He spoke kindly to Jehoiakim and gave him a higher place than all the other exiled kings in Babylon. He supplied Jehoiakim with new clothes to replace his prison garb and allowed him to dine in the king's presence for the rest of his life. So the Babylonian king gave him a regular food allowance as long as he lived. This continued until the day of his death. If that story doesn't hit your heart, I want you to think of you being King Jehoiakim. And this evil Merodic, the Babylonian king, being Jesus. You were in prison because of your rebellion. But Jesus died on the cross 
took you out of that prison gate, told you to remove them prison clothes, robed you in royalty, sat you at his table, and said, I'm here for you forever. I'm going to give you everything you need. How powerful is that? that? That we don't have to sit in this abandonment in prison, wondering where our Savior is. He came and, and took us by the cross. And he said, you're mine. And I will supply for you forever. If you don't know that love, if that love sounds foreign to you, if you feel like you're in prison, ask the question of who your king is. Is your king, is your God, the God of heaven? Or is it something on this earth that's ruling over your life? You know, in, in the New Testament, Paul would write about his journey and he would talk about being in chains for Christ because he was literally on house arrest because of what he was doing. But he was joyful that he was in chains for Christ. Are you in chains for Christ? Are you in chains by your sin? It's easy to stay in chains by this world. But it's a glorious celebration to break them by the blood of Jesus and to serve him with your whole life. Because only he will provide all of your needs for eternity. Another parallel that I think is really exciting is um, through the life of the Israelites. We see um, in the Old Testament that God creates humanity in his image, right? Um, in Genesis. In the same way God has, in Deuteronomy, called the people of Israel to be his chosen people. And he sends them out. Um, if you're a believer, God has chosen you. And then another thing that's common between those parties is that sin and rebellion enter. And there's a longing for a savior. Um, for the creation, it's in the fall in the Garden of Eden where they're tempted by Satan and they take the fruit. Um, for the people of Israel, it was in Jerusalem, like we just read. For us, it could be a number of things. You know where it is in your life. I know where it is in mine. And then the third thing that I find to be in common with those parties is that there's a promise of hope. Um, and this is where it's cool because that promise is the same for all three of those parties. In the Garden of Eden, it was the promise of a coming Messiah that would crush the head of Satan. In Israel, as we read here, it was the hope to be brought back home. For us, it's the blood of Jesus. And for all three of those, it's the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter if we're talking about creation and Genesis, the coming of Jesus in Revelation, the journey of the people of Israel here in Jeremiah, or our lives. The hope is all the same. It's Jesus. I want to leave you guys today with a little bit of application um, because this is the, the last 
series or the last uh, sermon in this series, a little two-part um, context series. And I really want to challenge us as a church, myself included, to continue to look at context of the scripture that we're reading. Um, it's an exciting thing to do. It's really fulfilling to, to search for a deeper understanding of God's word. Um, and let me just be very clear. You have the, the ability to do it. Um, and, I, and I hope as I go through a couple of tips and tricks that um, you'll start to realize that. The first tool that I believe we've been given to better study the word is prayer. Um, here's a little analogy that plays into the movie that I thought of in the shower the other day. Um, trying to understand scripture without the Holy Spirit is like going to the movie theater and seeing one of those really cool 3D movies. Y'all remember those? Where you put the glasses on? Oh, I used to love those. But I would, I would cheat a little bit as a kid, and I'd be like, I can watch it without them. And I'd take those glasses off, and it was like blur everywhere and a little bit of a headache. You know, like, ooh, that is not what I thought it would look like. But then when you put them glasses back on, them 3D glasses back on, it's like, whoa. It's crystal clear. Reading the word without asking for the guidance of God is like going to a 3D movie without 3D glasses. You might be able to pick up on a little bit here and there. You might get a general gist of what's being talked about, but the deep understanding and clarity will not come. That's given to us through the Holy Spirit. So as you approach the word, pray for the Holy Spirit to give you the eyes to see. Pray for them glasses. The second tool to better study the word is the word that's right you cannot have a deeper understanding of the bible without the bible why do i say that we're at a point in, in our church uh, paul and i were talking about this the other day where we're super excited about what's going on in our small groups because we're taking and reading god's word together no special books no special programs those are great. They're a gift. They help us get deeper understanding of themes and different books. But there's power in God's word alone. So why don't we just open the word together? I encourage you to pick a book, any book. Just open up the Bible, pick a book, and just read it straight through. From chapter 1, please stay in context. Chapter 1, all the way to the end of it. You'll learn something. I can guarantee it. And then the last is each other. The last tool to better understand the word is each other. I can, uh, you know, you guys might think that um, you don't have the capability to share what God's teaching you about his word. But I can almost promise if I were to hand any of you this microphone and ask you to teach us something, that God would speak through you. If you've been in his word and you've asked him to teach you something. He desires for you to learn. You have the capability. You just got to ask and you got to do it. And you have something that you can contribute because the Holy Spirit will work in your heart different than he'll work in mine. You're valuable. Your input about the word is important. And it's a gift to be able to be in the word together. Um. And so I pray that you'll do those things, and I pray that you've learned something today. I know I have. Um, I learned that Jeremiah is a 
book that has a lot of history to it. Um, and I want to pray for us, and then we'll go into a couple, or we'll go into one more song, and then we'll close for the day, okay? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day.